Good to see you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them to the epistle of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, we're going to pick up in chapter 2 today, where we left off last week. We're going to go back and cover a little bit of material. Last week we got through chapter 2, verse 3, at least in a preliminary way. We're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 2 with the hopes of getting through verse 10. Whether or not we make it that far, time will tell. But that's the objective for today. We're going to talk about some more commentary Peter gives in this idea as he did at the end of chapter 1 that we are one body and we are a family and how we are to earnestly love one another. And then he gives us some instructions of what we need to do in sort of a negative way and then he gives us an instruction as what we need to do in a positive way. So we're going to talk about those things and then talk about Christ as our cornerstone and what that means and particularly uh, why it's important that it is Peter that gives this wonderful passage where it places Christ as the cornerstone and the foundation of the church. So we'll get there if, if time permits. So beginning with chapter 2, verse 1 and following. It says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of of the Lord. I'm going to stop there for now because we want to talk about the negative things or the things that he says we need to do away with and then some of the things we are to pursue. We are first of all to put aside malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Most of those uh, bring to your mind certain connotations and they're kind of self-explanatory. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them, but I will point out a couple of things. First of all, he says, put it aside. Paul uses this word several times as well when he tells the Colossians in, in a similar kind of list. He says, put aside all anger and malice and so forth. And the idea is this. It's not just putting aside as in you might put something down, like you might set a glass on a table or you might set something on your chair as you leave. The idea of putting aside can be translated and sometimes is translated cast off with some kind of repugnance. In other words, you are to put it as far away from you as possible with a certain amount of vigor. It should so revolt you that you're not just laying it down gently, you are tearing it away and casting it as far as you can away from you. Several years ago, my family and I had the great opportunity to go to the, uh, the infamous Bass Pro Shops which is a lot of fun, and we were up there, and we came out of Bass Pro, and somebody had taken what I gathered to be a very large dog to Bass Pro at some time before us, or between the time we got there and the time we came out. And their dog had left a certain evidence of his presence in the parking lot, which I duly found with my foot. Let me tell you something, I cast off the boot as quickly and with great repugnance as I could muster, and I threw it in the bushes. Because you did not throw your shoes. I absolutely threw my shoes away. <laughs> it was just, it was unspeakable. But the idea is, I, I didn't want it anywhere near me. The idea that this was on my person and it was connected. It, no, couldn't have that. I took the boot off and threw it against the fence in the bushes. Did not want that. That is the picture that, that Peter's using. It's the picture that Paul uses when he talks about this idea of casting off. It's not something we do sort of happenstantially or sort of, you know, I, I might, I guess, I guess. 
this. I don't need that. The idea is this. This so repulses me that I don't want it anywhere near me. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says it this way in 12.1. He says, cast off every encumbrance and run the race. And the idea was as the runners would come to the starting line, they would cast off their cloaks and they would run in what we would call shorts or whatever. But anything that would keep them from running well, they cast off and they threw it aside. Are we making that kind of effort? I mean, yes, we are saved and we are saved to the uttermost and we are forgiven and we are justified in Christ and we stand before holy God, pure and perfect, but yet we are still to make an effort here. Some of us need to make a little more effort in casting aside some of the things that seem to be infecting our life as though they are repugnant to us. And what are those things? First of all, malice. What do you think of when you think of malice? If you watch very much... Uh, TV at all, and, and you watch courtroom dramas, you'll see this, this, this certain crime was committed with what? Malice aforethought. This is a fancy way, fancy way of saying he thought about it before he did it. Okay? It's done with malice aforethought. Malice means evil intent. You know where malice really comes from? It comes from anger. Anger comes from resentment. Resentment comes from even sometimes the smallest disappointment. Sometimes people, even in churches, dare I say, and I know you don't want to think that way, but even in churches, somebody finds themselves, first of all, disappointed by something. Could be disappointed by the pastor, could be something disappointed by someone else in the church. And so next thing they do is they stop coming because now they're disappointed. And that disappointment, if it's left unaddressed, if it's left unconfessed, that disappointment will very soon begin to fester into resentment. And that resentment will fester into anger. And before long, you're beyond anger and you're into malice. And the idea is this, evil intent for the other person. In other words, it would not bother you at all. In fact, it would almost please you. You would have to not, you would have to try to make yourself not smile if you heard about something bad that happened to that person. Maybe not in the, you know, a deadly kind of way, but you ever had somebody cut you off in traffic? Now, um, I heard just yesterday that um, one of the Christian stations, and I can't remember which one it was, said that they are curing road rage one song at a time. I said, you should ride with some of the people I ride with. And I don't ride with that many people, but I'm not going to name names. You ever had somebody cut you off, right? Especially if they're driving crazy. I, I call them weavers. You ever see a weaver coming up in your rearview mirror? And I'm like, it's 60, people. That is the law. So I'm driving 60. Here they come, weaving in and out of traffic. Weaving in. And you know what? Sometimes it, it, I say to myself, I hope that person gets a ticket. Or sometimes, you know, it would not bother me if I saw them kind of off in the ditch. Just, that's just what you get. You know what? Because I have malice towards that person. I, it's not that I really would do something, but I sure wouldn't be unhappy, unhappy if something did happen. That's malice. You think, how would anybody in the body of Christ have malice towards somebody else in the body of Christ? <laughs> and maybe this is the only church you've been a member of, and if that's, that's, that's great. But not all churches have a unity of spirit and oneness that we have here there are churches where there's so much fighting that you wonder that the Lord puts up, puts up with them at all. So the idea of malice, put that away from you. We should desire the best for one another. We should rejoice with those who are rejoicing. 
And when something negative happens in life, we should not, you know, somehow gloat about that. We should cry and weep with those that are weeping. We share a oneness. And Peter says, do away with malice and guile. The idea of lying. Hypocrisy. You're familiar. Right? I'm, I'm sure. Used to rent a house from a gentleman... And I would invite him occasionally to church, and I'd just tell him, you know, I'd say it's, uh, you know, it's part of the job. People get upset if I don't at least invite you to church. So I, I, so I invite him to church every so often. He would always say to me, I'll tell you sometime why I don't go to church. And I said, I don't know what, what happened, but I can guarantee you one thing. I bet it had to do with people. He said, yes, it sure does. Bunch of hypocrites down there at church. You know, I said, well, come on down because you'll fit right in. You know what? Is a bunch of hypocrites down there? Absolutely. You know why? Because we're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. And if you say you're perfect, then go back up to guile and deceitfulness and lying because we all know better. But the thing is, in Christ, we have been made perfect before a holy God. Now we're just kind of, we're trying to work that out and become more and more like Him. And we'll get to that in just a second. But he says, put away hypocrisy. You know what hypocrisy creates? It creates a, a resentment from those who are lost toward the church. They look at the church and say, they're no different than me. I work with that guy every day, and I hear what he says, and I see how he acts, and I see how or she, he or she treats people. I see how they behave, and they are no different than me, except that they go to church on Sunday morning and come on Monday morning and condemn me because I didn't go. But otherwise, there's no difference. That's hypocrisy. There ought to be a difference in the way we behave and act and the things we say and do. To such an extent that people say, I don't know what that person's got. But he's got a joy and a hope. He's got a friendly character. He, he's got this work ethic that demonstrates that he is committed to something larger than himself or herself. And I don't know what they got, but I sure would like to have some of it. Don't be a hypocrite. When I was practicing labor law and doing that kind of work, I got a call one day from a lady one no. You know, if her termination was possibly wrongful, I said, well, come on in and see me. So she came on in and uh, she was doing her job, doing everything she's supposed to do, supposedly. Well, she saw the Bible laying on my desk there and we got to conversing about that. And she said, oh, are you, are you a Christian? I said, well, I am. I said, I'm a, I'm a bivocational pastor as well as doing this. I, you know, so, so we got to talk about it. She was a Christian, too. And then, then this is what she said. I kid you not. She said, well, I, I believe in the Bible. So I believe in the Bible. She said, I, I sit in the stairwell at work and read my Bible for two or three hours. And so I said, um, is it in your job description to sit in the stairwell and read the Bible? Well, no, I'm supposed to be mopping and sweeping and stuff, but I, you know, I got to read the Word. I said, hypocrite. You know, if, if you are one of the only believers wherever you are, whether that's in school or whether that's work, you ought to be the kind of person that your teacher or professor or employer says, I don't know exactly what's different about that person, but I wish I had a bunch of them just like that. Because they come down here with a good attitude, and when things go by, go wrong or go bad, they still have a, a good attitude, and they come with cheerfulness, and they come with faithfulness, and they give me a full day's work. I wish I had a whole room full of those kind of people. That's not what we are sometimes. So 
We have to watch out for hypocrisy. What's that got to do with our relationship as brothers and sisters? Because not only does hypocrisy affect the lost, but your hypocrisy may affect your brother or sister across the aisle. You say, well, wasn't that big a deal? What I, you know, how I act and things I do and jokes I tell or movies I go to or whatever. Well, you know, your brother or sister might feel very differently. And Paul says we're free in Christ. What about freedom in Christ? Well, how about Paul goes on to say, do not use your freedom as an opportunity and give deference to your brother or sister. Why wound a brother and sister to live out your freedom? We're called to be steadfast and your Monday through Saturday walk ought to match your Sunday walk. Envy and slander... Envy for most of us is, uh, well, I don't know, maybe people struggle with, with envy. Um, I, I'll, I'll share with you, I don't, I don't struggle with envy for your stuff. You know, I, God's blessed me with more stuff than I know what to do with. I'm trying to get rid of a bunch of it now. I'm so blessed that, you know, I'm having a garage sale. I got plenty of stuff. I, and I don't covet lands or titles. You know, my, my secret sin is uh, I, I envy giftedness. You know, I'm like uh, Saliadre in the great movie Amadeus. You ever seen the great movie Amadeus? And Amadeus is so angry at God because he has this passion for music and he does not have near the ability as young Mozart, who he can't stand because God has just blessed Mozart beyond degree. And yet Saliadre has a passion for it, but is not gifted like that. And so finally, in some point in the movie, he curses God. Because he hasn't cursed him and yet gave such a giftedness to one he calls the creature, Mozart. You know, it, it's hard for me sometimes. I remember in seminary chapel one time, a guy by the name of Eugene Lowry came. And he was a professor of preaching at the Methodist seminary. But we allowed him to come over to the Baptist seminary. You know, he was a special guest speaker. And he played the piano. And when he played the piano, the whole grand piano just shook because he took hymns and turned it into jazz and blues. And it sounded, you know, he's stomping the pedal so hard you thought there's a percussion section behind him. And he just played and played. And I was just overwhelmed. I bought his tapes. You know, back, they used to have these things, cassette tapes. And uh, anyway, I bought his tapes and wore the thing out. It was just wonderful. I would, oh, I'd love to play like that. I just... I keep looking over here because Gary knows what I'm talking about. You, why, Lord? Or why not? No, you, we envy. Well, I said to myself, well, he plays the piano good, but I bet he can't preach very well. He got up and gave one of the most wonderful, eloquent, pointed sermons I ever heard. And I went to class thinking, Lord, this is, some people get it all, and some, some of us get, well, not all. And sometimes we think not even much. And then Dr. Bean came in the Old Testament classroom where, to which I had gone. And we began every, every classroom with prayer. And Dr. Bean, who was a giant, spiritually speaking, knew more about the Old Testament than I'll ever know. And whom I admired and respected as a scholar and a believer. He prayed these words, Lord... Forgive me when I look at the giftedness of other people and wish I had what they had. Wow. I thought, Lord, forgive me 
when I look at what you've given other people and wish I had what they had. You know, God has made you uniquely and particularly and specifically and intentionally where you are, who you are, and put you in a place that you are to serve Him in a way that only you can. Now, you may not be, feel as though you're as gifted as other people, but if you're His child, you are gifted uniquely to serve Him in a way that only you can. And if you spend all your time looking around how gifted and in the way other people are gifted, instead of focusing on how God has gifted you and your purpose and your mission in the local body of Christ, it goes undone. We'll talk about how we are knitted together because Peter's going to go on and talk about that if we get there as living stones. But he says, put away these things. Slander, you know all about slander. You know, we, we don't even spend much time on it, but... You know, be careful how you talk, talk about your brother or sister in Christ. If it's going to diminish the person you're talking about in the view of the person to whom you're talking, don't say it. Unless you're part of the problem or part of the solution, you don't need to say it. If it's going to bring down the person you're talking about in the eyes or the mind of the person to whom you're talking, you don't need to be saying it. And I'm talking about in, in the body of Christ. Enough about slander. That's what he says. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk. We didn't unpack that for just a minute. He says as newborn babes. This is not a dismissal or a permission to remain immature in the faith. He's not talking about remaining a babe in Christ forever because in several, several other places, writers in the New Testament have said, look, by now you ought to be mature, but you're still a babe in Christ. But he, said, he uses this analogy because babes crave, they long for the milk. And as Matthew Henry says, an infant will use everything at its disposal to make its craving known. And if you are a parent, you know what that means. A child can do a few things and one of them is cry very loudly. And they use everything in their being to let it be known that I desire, I long for the milk. I want to be fed. And he's saying, likewise, as believers, we ought to long for the pure milk. We're going to talk about what that means here in just a minute. But he says, we ought to long for it as babes long for milk. Because it nurtures us. It gives us nutrition. It keeps us sustained. It keeps us growing. We start out as babes in Christ. And one of the things I think we need to pause for just a minute and talk about, particularly in, in Baptist life and the way we, we typically do uh, church in our training, recognize that even those who come to Christ a little bit later in life are infants in Christ. They need the milk. They need the fundamental teachings of Scripture and of the faith. But this is what we normally do. We normally bring a person to the point of praying a sinner's prayer and accepting Christ as their Savior. And sometimes, you know, they, you know, even in vacation Bible school, they may be real young or they may be a little older. It doesn't really matter. We bring them to the point of saying a prayer and asking Jesus into their heart. We baptize them. We shake their hands. We give them a certificate and say, good luck. And that's it. You know what happens to a lot of those people? They leave the church and never come. They, they leave the church and, and live a life devoid of anything having to do with God. But we gave them a certificate. So 
so that later when they pass away, some family member can find that certificate and reassure ourselves that so-and-so went to heaven because I've got a certificate right here that says when he was eight years old, he gave his life to Jesus. No, he never lived for Christ, never had any time for God, never showed any fruit, never any evidence that he actually believed anything, but here's the certificate. You know what the Great Commission is? And here's the other thing we've got to get straight in our minds. The Great Commission is not for missionaries. Because that's what the other thing we do in Baptist life. We have commissioning services where we lay hands on the missionaries going overseas and we say, you know, here's the Great Commission. And we typically include that in our commissioning services. We talk about the Great Commission. You remember what the Great Commission is, right? Go ye therefore and make disciples teaching them to obey all the commandments. Now, here's the thing. What do you think the main verb in the, in the Great Commission is? Because we think it's go. Correct. It's not go. It is make. And this, I believe, is where the church is failing. Not this church particularly, just the church in general. The church is not making disciples. We're good about going or sending others to go. We're going to bring converts, but converts is just the first step. Jesus didn't say, go and make converts. And then just give them a certificate and let them go do whatever they want. Let them find a church on their own. Just let them figure it out on their own. Give them a cop copy of you know 1 John, because that'll help a little. Give them a little paperback copy of 1 John, and then send them on their way. He said, make disciples. That's the key verb in that sentence. And we get confused because in English, the main verb is usually the first verb. But in this case, it's not. In fact, go is really as you're going. That could be anywhere. That could be to the uttermost parts of the world, but that could be to a classroom. That could be to a job. That could be to the grocery store. As you're going, make disciples. What's that mean? Well, he tells us. You bring them to saving knowledge of Christ, baptizing them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then what? Teaching them to obey all the commandments I have given you. That's our job. But here's what we do. We just, out of the baptismal waters, out the door. Mark down another wind. You know, when we left, when we left our old building, we baptized, if I'm not mistaken, the last Sunday we were there, we baptized 17 people. It was the most people I'd ever baptized in, in, since I've been a pastor. It was the most people we baptized at one time at that church, at least while I was there, maybe since the whole time Evergreen was there. We baptized 17 people. You know how many disciples we went on to make after that? You know why? Through the baptismal waters, congratulations, here's your certificate, good luck to you. And for some of those people, I'm convinced, you know why they got baptized on that particular Sunday? It was the last chance to be baptized in that building. Here's what we need to start doing. You know, they say you, you need several things to, be bad, to, to have a baptism, right? You need some water. You need a convert. You need somebody to do the baptism. But that's not all you need. We need as a church to so discipline and commit ourselves to making disciples, which is what we're supposed to be doing, and teaching people that when they come out of baptismal waters, they go directly into the arms of somebody who's going to be their mentor. 
If there are 17 baptisms, we need 17 men or women there that are mature in Christ, waiting for every one of them, saying, Now I will take you under my wing, and I am going to be your mentor. You are going to be my disciple, and I'm going to teach you the commandments of Christ. I'm going to feed you the milk of spiritual truth. And until you have somebody waiting to go on and make them a disciple, we are failing as a church in the commission which we have been given. Think, oh my goodness, 17 of us. Some of us are going to have to start doing something. I mean, I like coming to church and all. I mean, just, but, and, you know, go home. But, well, you, you want me to do something? Yes, that's the idea. In fact, you know, in the Great Commission really is the great, greatest church growth plan there is. And in case you missed it, here, here's the church growth plan. People ask me, and I'm sure they ask every pastor that's ever met with a, with a pulpit committee, this question gets asked. And I, I had it asked me when I came here by two different groups. If you were to become pastor, what would you do to grow the church? And I was kind of, you know, you, you, as, a, as a pastor candidate, you always come and say, well, I haven't been in the community long enough to really understand the demographics and dynamics of the culture in Springfield, so I'm not sure. But I'm sure, you know, we'd pray about it and come up with something. You come up with some answer because you got to say something, right? What if you just were honest and said, here's the plan. Here's the plan. In fact, I'm going to tell you right now, here's the plan this morning. We can double attendance next week. Here's what you got to do. Everyone in this room finds somebody that's lost to whom you're close enough to share your faith, bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ in your home or their home or in the workplace, and then next Sunday, bring them to church and we will make disciples of them. That's church growth plan according to Scripture. But that means everybody in here has to find somebody has to share their faith. And if you're unwilling to share your faith or, or, or bring somebody to a saving knowledge of Christ or at the bare minimum, invite them to church. And then we come and we're like, well, you know what we need? We need more signage. We need to increase our presence on Facebook. We, we need to have our own website, which we're, we're trying to do all that stuff. But that's not church growth. Church growth happens when people's in the pews begin to share their faith and bring people to Christ. And then they come to church to become disciples. He says, you're newborn babes. And we forget the new converts are just that. They need the basics of salvation. Most people, if the Holy Spirit calls them and you know, brings them to Christ in such a way, a lot of people don't realize what just happened to them. Well, who's going to explain it to them? should be us as disciple makers. Every once in a while you'll see in the news that a baby's been abandoned somewhere. You see those tragic news stories that baby baby's been put away somewhere, thrown in the trash even sometimes. You think, what kind of person would abandon an infant? We do it all the time spiritually. And we need to stop it. What that means is, some of you who have known the Lord for a long time and have a lot of spiritual wisdom and a lot of spiritual maturity and a lot of insight and a lot of spiritual milk to pass along are going to have to be willing to embrace somebody who just came to Christ and say, I will invest my life in you. 
I will come alongside you for X number of time, uh, years or whatever. Christ spent three years with 12 men, pouring his life into them, making disciples of them. He showed us how to do it. We just need to do it. He says, by having the milk of the word. What is the milk of the word? Now, you look at all kinds of sermons as far back as, as I bothered to go, and most sermons will talk about the milk of the word is the word of God, the Bible. Peter's writing to a group of people who did not have a Bible. They certainly didn't have the New Testament. It's still being written. They had the letters of Paul, but probably none of them had their own copy of the letters of Paul. They had the Old Testament, but very few of the people in the pews would have a copy of the Old Testament in their home. That was kept in the temple. So very few people would have a written word or a Bible to, to dig into and spend time in. And yet, as preachers say, the milk of the Word is the Word of God. Hey, what does Paul say it is? Because he says, I, I would tell you uh, deeper truths and spiritual meat, but you're babes and you still need milk. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, or instruction about worship and laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we shall do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. He says, they have fallen away. It's impossible to re renew them again to repentance. Look at the danger of not keeping people fed. And he says, by now, you ought to be mature. You ought to be teachers. But you have need again for someone to teach you the elemental principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk instead of solid food. And then he goes on to name what he thinks are the elemental things. Works of faith, repentance, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. All those things are basic. You should all know that. So it's like, well, quite a list to be calling it elementary. This is the milk that Peter is talking about. Not necessarily Scripture, but the teachings, the elemental, fundamental, basic groundwork of the Christian faith. And where did these people get that? They didn't have a copy of God's Word. Where would they get it? They would get it from those who become teachers, who become mature in Christ. They would soon get it from the letters of Paul, from the letters of Peter. From the Gospels, which began to circulate, yes, they would soon get it that way. But back in this day and time, it came from one-on-one -on -one teaching. The elemental, fundamental things of Christian faith. Now, we are blessed to have God's Word. And we should long for God's Word. Now, I love what Peter says. That by it, he's talking about the, the milk again. By it you may grow in respect to salvation. You may think, well, I'm confused now because you just said we're saved to the uttermost. We stand, you know, we stand in the righteousness of Christ, blameless before God, spotless. Uh, now you're saying we've got to grow in regards to salvation. Which is it? 
We stand before God in the righteousness of Christ, but we still grow in respect to how much we reflect His glory and how much we begin to resemble Him. The Bible says that God is continuing, continually making us more and more like His Son. It's not a perfect analogy, but I'm reminded of when Sydney was born. She was a tiny thing. I could hold her in the palm of my hand. You know, or you could just hold her like a basketball or whatever. You know, she, she was just a little bitty thing. And I remember they came for us to go home from the hospital. Later on the bed. Now we had picked out the going home outfit before she was born. So we put the going home outfit on her. I looked at Tiff and she looked at me and we looked at the baby. Did we put it on wrong? Like, no, it's, it's not on backwards. Because all you could see is her tiny toes sticking out and about this much of her head. Because the outfit was huge on her. But time passed and she grew into it. The outfit did not change. She began to grow. Your salvation does not change. You are in Christ. Paul uses that analogy specifically. And it says you have been clothed in Christ. You have put on the new man. And some of us are wandering around like a teenager or an adolescent in daddy's suit. Because we have been clothed with this great righteousness, but we have not grown into it. Peter's saying, look, by the milk and the pure elemental teachings of the Christian faith, you will begin to mature and grow, and you will grow into your salvation. It doesn't mean you're attaining it. It just means you grow to become what you already are, if that makes sense. We are becoming our salvation, which we've already received in Christ. Finally, and we must stop here for today. I'm sorry we didn't get through uh, all the verses that we intended to, but verse 3, he says, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, um, please understand that um, it should, it possibly is translated in your, in your version as if indeed. Uh, it may be even translated in your version as since indeed, because the Greek word uh, can mean if, it can mean since. And I think actually since would have been a better translation of the Greek in this particular case, because this is what he's saying, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation since you indeed have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Are we becoming what we're supposed to be becoming? Are we growing to the point where we will step out and say, I don't know everything, never will, this side of glory. But I do know the basics. I can take somebody under my wing who's a babe in Christ, and I can teach them, and I, and I can guide them, at least in the foundation, the elemental truths, the milk of the Christian faith. And then together, we'll discover the solid food and the deeper things of faith. Long for the word. Long for the instruction. Long for those times when God will illumine your heart and open your mind to His truth. Peter says, by it you will grow. Since we have tasted the glory, the goodness of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for indeed Your goodness and Your grace. You pour it out on us, though we do not deserve it. 
We did not deserve what you've given us. We just praise you for it. You are high and holy and lifted up. Father, your word tells us that your glory fills the expanse of the tabernacle. Father, in all that we see and all we get to see in the infinite space around us, is filled with your glory. And yet you are good to us. Who are we that you should take notice? Who are we even more still that you should die for us? We thank you that you did. For your grace on us, and we just pray you for it, Lord. I pray that you would help us to remember that our calling, that our commission is to make disciples, to share what you've given us. We do not have the right to hold it to ourselves, Father. Make us faithful. 